We can still ask the question whether or not COVID came from a lab in Wuhan, China, or if it actually transferred from animals to humans. I don't think we can get that information from the World Health Organization. But I think we could, if we were honestly investigating, we could find out. But we're not honestly investigating, are we? And we know that when it comes to China, there can be no honest investigation because it's China and nothing is honest in a communist nation. Communists, communists can't be trusted. We know this to be sure. We know that the World Health Organization let us down and failed to do their job properly. And people like Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, have been very, very clear that when the moment came, the World Health Organization failed us. They did the bidding of China and not the, the bidding of what would not be the bidding, but rather the job necessary to warn the world. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. But regardless, regardless of any of it, no one would think that the Wuhan Virology Lab, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, should be nominated for a Nobel Prize. Jim Garrity joins us right now. He is over at National Review, National Review Online. Their senior political correspondent, and he has done some of the great work in the investigating of uh, the lab, uh, the, the possibility of leaks, how these things uh, connect. And we're going to dig into some of that, uh, Jim, on Twitter, by the way, G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y, Jim Garrity on Twitter. But China believes that the Wuhan lab deserves a Nobel Prize. Man. There is nothing like telling a lie and then tripling down on uh, telling people you're pious when you're clearly not. Tony, it's always a joy to hear your voice. And, uh, yeah, as as one of my editors put it this morning, how do you say chutzpah in Chinese? um, Oddly enough, the same way. uh, Look, you know, uh, one of the ways I'm finding good fodder for columns and for material is just to look at, see what what Chinese state-run media is saying. Uh, and and you know, unsurprisingly, a lot of it will be lies, as you pointed out. Communists, and in particular, I'd just say in general, authoritarian regimes generally do not tell the truth. They are terrified of ever admitting a mistake. They are terrified of ever saying anything has gone wrong. And this, they always need to be these uh, triumphant powers marching into the future and dear leader and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, the Chinese regime's treatment of this, you know, increasingly strong possibility of a lab leak has been characterized by secrecy and unrealistic denials. And, you know, this this pandemic began with the Chinese government insisting for at least three weeks and arguably six weeks that the virus could not be spread from one human being to another, even though doctors in Wuhan were catching it from their patients, which would seem to be pretty clear evidence that it was indeed, you know, contagious amongst humans. So, yeah, that's a spin in the Chinese state-run media in the last day. Uh, The Chinese Academy of Sciences has nominated the Wuhan Institute of Virology for one of their major awards uh, and insisting that, you know, it, it's done so much great work. Uh, you know, look, this is um, 
easy to, to knock around and talk about how ridiculous it is, but there's, there's two significant lessons here, or th- things that jump out about this. The first is obviously, like, we don't see Dr. Lee Wen-Lang, who was the uh, ophthalmologist who was trying to warn other doctors on the ground about this virus and saying that, yes, this is contagious. You're, you know, I, I'm seeing this in my patients. Uh, the Chinese pulled him down to the police station and, and made him con- sign a confession for spreading rumors, and of Dr. Lee Wen-Lang eventually died of the virus. Uh, so if you're looking for a real hero in China, there's one right there. Our beef has never been with the Chinese people. It's been the Chinese regime uh, and how much it attempted to suppress the truth of this. And, uh, and then the other thing is just the observation, the fact that they believe that the Wuhan Institute of Virology, not only is it not guilty of having an accident or some sort of spill or leak or something like that that led to this virus entering the populace, uh, they believe it believes like the, the greatest of recognition on the world stage, which suggests that, in fact, like the cover up is so extensive, they can't even admit anything could have gone wrong, which is a good way to make sure you don't fix things, which is probably should really make us nervous. And as we discussed just last week, when there was the possibility of a nuclear leak and that story seems to have gone away, how could you trust China even on that subject? Talking to Jim Garrity of National Review, nationalreview.com, uh, trust. China is the story and is the issue here. And part of, as you discussed it, is this long history, even if we're just discussing it in terms of COVID, of cover-ups. Everything has been a cover-up and everything they've done with the World Health Organization has been a cover-up. As you have been following this and writing about this, where are the big ones in your eyes? What have been the things that have been the most egregious from China? And clearly there's an issue and clearly you're not talking about it. And for some reason, a large part of media is going along with not talking about it, too. Sure. But like I said, that first one about not admitting the contagiousness of the virus you know, whatever chance we had of controlling this pandemic and stopping it from spreading all around the world and becoming the catastrophe that it's been, uh, that that was probably the single most important one. Um, but I think also one of the things that jumps out, and, and we've seen a really dramatic uh, shifting of the conventional wisdom around the lab leak theory. And there are a lot of folks in our world, Tony, who'd say, well, clearly they, they didn't want to give any credit to Donald Trump. And clearly it was seen as if, if you admitted that this was a possibility that would help Trump before the election, now that Biden is elected, it's safe for scientists to admit this. I'm sure that's a factor at work, but I think one of the other factors that doesn't get discussed nearly as much is that I think a lot of people early in this pandemic in 2020 figured at some point the Chinese government would find some pangolin, which is a little anteater-like critter, uh, or some other mammal or some bat, and they would find SARS-CoV-2, that's the specific name of this this particular virus that causes COVID-19, and they'd find a bunch of animal smugglers who either all gotten really, really sick or all died early in 20, at some point in autumn of 2019 and said, aha, this is it. This is how it jumped from animals into humans. And here we are. It is, you know, June 21st, 2021, and uh, that they, have, as of yet, have not found that animal. And in fact, one of the things that's very strange is that not only have we not found this, we found very similar viruses in other bats. Uh, and in fact, the single, the virus that is most similar that we've been found in nature, that is most similar to SARS-CoV-2, was found in this mine shaft down in southern China. It's like a thousand miles from Wuhan. It's not. It's well outside the migratory range of the horseshoe bats that carry it. 
So there was this question of, okay, so let's say SARS-CoV-2 came from this mine shaft. How did it get to Wuhan? Why have we not detected it in anybody else in between any of these places? And oh, by the way, the Wuhan Institute of Virology was regularly going down there and collecting samples in this mine shaft, which is kind of like, a, like you could see the pieces starting to, pull, you know, to fall into place here. Okay, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is studying coronaviruses and bats, goes down into this mine shaft, collects a whole bunch of samples. Um, they took down their database of what they had so people couldn't match, check to see, oh, we've got a new virus here. Does this match against stuff that they had in there? They've been insisting since the beginning that this has nothing to do with us, and it's purely coincidental. Now, I won't repeat the whole John Stewart routine, but I think it was really enjoyable to see um, a late-night comedian who is by no means part of the right-wing conspiracy um, lay out with incre- the incredulity of believing that it's entirely coincidental that a novel coronavirus that is most similar to the ones found in bats happened to occur out of, just outside of one of the three locations on Earth that is doing gain-of-function research on novel coronaviruses. Found and look at the abuse John Stewart took mm-hmm. for that. Abuse from the political left for daring to say, wait a second, look at where you are, look at what's happening. The odds are in in your favor that this virus came from this lab. The abuse was never ending. So as we talk about China and their cover-ups and China and their dishonesty, the World Health Organization failing, this conversation from American press that only now we look into the idea uh, that this this virus leaked uh, from a lab, the whole conversation whether or not there is indeed a Chinese defector who gave the Biden administration information to make them believe, and I'm not 100% sure if we trust a Chinese defector, but it's only now that they even begin to hint at it, and they take someone like John Stewart and say, well, you know, he's not an expert. Yeah, he's not an expert, but he is a guy on the bar stool hanging out with you saying, that looks pretty obvious to me. Tony, I don't remember any of this. John Stewart's not an expert during any of the Bush years. Do you? What? Uh, I, oh, 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 now oh I heard oh, it. I must have heard it a million oh, okay. times. Um, yeah, just kind of like an observation on that. There are large swaths of American society that are deeply uncomfortable with criticizing China. And part of that stems, if you're hearing it from, uh, say, you know, whether it's Stuart, uh, Stephen Colbert was afraid he was going to get a call from uh, Redstone uh, and said Viacom saying, look, we've got massive business interest in China. Having John Stewart on this show doing this is gonna is bad for us. Don't 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 criticize Beijing. Don't don't ruffle the feathers over there. Um, you know that that's a possibility. Certainly, it's why Disney is uh, afraid of this, and NBA, and, and you know uh, LeBron James, and all the other examples we've seen of people who usually love to denounce police brutality suddenly getting very quiet about police brutality in places like Hong Kong or genocide of the Uyghurs or, or issues like that. Um, and then the second one is just that I figure if you are an American leftist, not, not, not even going to say if you're an American Democrat, if you're a committed progressive, if you're the kind of people who really gets fired up at this, about this sort of thing, China is kind of irrelevant because you don't, you want to say, it's, it's, you know, it, as you said, it's communist. It certainly is much more, I, I think you can argue about whether it's actually kind of state-run capitalist uh, or kind of this merging of big business and the state in ways that are, that it's not the classic communism we associate with the Soviet Union. But it's a malignant force, but it's overseas. And if you're an American progressive, your enemy is American conservatives. And if American conservatives are really upset with China, well, then China can't be that bad. I, I really think the thinking for some of these folks is no more complicated than that, that any discussion of China uh, and its relationship to the pandemic, well, obviously, that's an attempt to make excuses for Donald Trump, as if we can't, you know, chew gum and walk at the same time.
Talking to Jim Garrity of National Review, National Review Online, on Twitter, G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y. All of this connects with Dr. Fauci. And as you noted uh, in, in, your, in your latest, or one of your latest, that if you take a look at Fauci's threshold for easing pandemic restrictions, we haven't reached that, but yet traveling is through the roof. People are outside. People are inside. Masks are off. I spent a week in Arizona. I saw a couple of masks, but in the main, there were no masks. Same thing is happening all over the place. And Joe Biden just said, we're not going to hit my target of July 4th. Ah, that's okay. We're not going to lock anything down again anyway. So yeah, uh, what value is Fauci? It's less, uh, just an observation. It was back in March. Uh, Fauci, I think it was when uh, Texas rescinded the statewide mask mandate, and everyone was waiting for the great Texan mass, massless apocalypse to kick in. Uh, the Greg Abbott was turning into the uh, Lord Humongous from Mad Max, and that eventually Texas would collapse into a state of chaos and anarchy. And obviously that didn't happen at all. One is that you know removing a state mandate doesn't mean that everybody in the state stops wearing masks. Uh, but also, I think you look at the numbers, you could say, OK, well, beginning towards the end of spring, we really started, you know, actually, it was a nice steady slide in the number of cases, n- nice dramatic slide in the number of deaths. Um, and we also saw, uh, you know, the vaccination rate is rising. So, that, you know, we, we are gradually getting towards herd immunity or something approaching it, where the virus just has fewer and fewer opportunities to jump into, you know, new people. And, you know, we did a really good job on senior citizens, the people who are most vulnerable, which is really good news. And you just kind of... I just kind of went back and I checked. The good news is, look, you, know, if you, I, I, you mentioned being in Arizona. Uh, I was in South Carolina uh, just last week, Tony. And, you know, you, 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 other than my younger son, who's not quite old enough to get the vaccine. And so, we've, you know, we're having him wear a mask around places where there are big crowds and stuff. We don't really we're not really sure he needs it, but we just want to do it as kind of, you know, knocking on wood as a little extra caution there. Um, yeah, obviously, young kids are not at great vulnerability of having a serious effect of the virus. The odds are something like one in 200 or something like that. But, uh, you know, we just do that stuff. But otherwise, you wouldn't know life, you know, that there was any pandemic going on. I think America was really ready for to embrace post-pandemic life. Uh, but it's, if right now, so Fauci had said he thought you shouldn't ease the restrictions until cases were down below 10,000 new cases a day. Well, if you go to the weekends, we're at about 7,800. That, that's good, you know. But on the, usually we have a dip on the weekends. People are less likely to go in, get tested, and, and see if they have a positive result. Uh, and the seven-day average right now is, as of this morning, is 11,432. So we're just above that. And, you know, it's, it's a great dramatic thing, but it's kind of fascinating to say. Even now, you look out your window and you see America, by and large, ready to put the pandemic behind it. And we're not quite at that threshold that Fauci thought was necessary uh, for eliminating the virus. And, yeah, Fauci is one of those guys who I entered this pandemic thinking very highly of. Tried to give him the benefit of the doubt in what was undoubtedly very challenging circumstances. And then month by month, not only was it very clear that he was hedging what he was saying and sometimes changing what he was saying from interview to interview, um, the the lack of being forthcoming about the potential for U.S. taxpayer dollars going to EcoHealth Alliance and then eventually going on to the Wuhan Institute of Virology is deeply disappointing. And I think you just have to rethink this. Uh, you know, we had him on the cover of National Review as a saint, and you know, the fall of Saint Fauci um, as our cover story by uh, my colleague Michael Bernandorti. And just a sense of just how much uh, Fauci has just become very clear. He's much more of a politician than I think many of us thought entering into this uh, grand national crisis.
Jim Garrity, G-E-R-A-G-H-T-Y, at Jim Garrity. On Twitter, be sure to check him out. And at National Review online, nationalreview.com. I appreciate you taking the time, as always. Much more coming up, including the straw poll that means nothing. I'm Tony Katz. These people can't stop themselves with their polls. Every day, it's a straw poll. It's a look at this. Is Trump going to run? Who's going to run against him? Would you vote for Trump or you vote for DeSantis? Where are you on Ted Cruz? What about Tim Scott? Guys, we are three years out. And we're really about 20 months before anybody's really jumping into this presidential race. And nobody's doing nothing until you know what Trump is doing. The need to fill column inches is ridiculous. But every group that gets together is going to have some kind of poll on who they think people are going to vote for. So this was the Western Conservative Summit. Me, I'm Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Always a pleasure. In fifth place is Tim Scott, senator from South Carolina. In fourth place is Mike Pompeo, the former Secretary of State, former CIA director, former congressman from Kansas. Third place is Senator Ted Cruz. Do you know how ridiculous this all is that Lion Ted is in third? Lion Ted, head to Cancun Ted, can't light a cigar Ted, is in third. You now realize how nonsense it all was. He's, he's, he's somehow a different guy? I think it was the same guy. Maybe he's learned how to be a little more open with his fighting. But still crazy smart. Would still love to see him on the bench. But the story is, in second came Donald Trump, and in first place was Ron DeSantis. So now, if you're Trump, do you have to respond to this? You got to, oh, well, as we all know, uh, uh, Ron DeSantis is a fine governor whom I have endorsed. Without me, he'd be nothing. I haven't made a decision yet on 2024. Trust me, I've got working on a lot of things. What's he going to say? Is he going to be insulted by this and fight back? Do you think DeSantis wants this heat? It's... Now, DeSantis is running for president. Of this, there's no doubt. The question will be 2024 or 2028. But the bigger conversation is that none of this matters right now. And the people pushing it, man, they're just wasting time. Don't waste time. Legal insurrection has got the latest on what's going on with CRT. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, scheduled to join us next. It's never-ending how the people who want to push it find ways to hate you. Quite a few months ago, I dubbed it the Great Pushback. Hashtag the Great Pushback. And this was the pushback from parents and from staff from rational people against critical race theory, against the bigotry going on in schools, this very idea of pushing an oppressed oppressor class mentality. 
and putting it in the guise, whether it be CRT or diversity, equity, and inclusion, or sometimes known as social-emotional learning, all different things, all of which seem to end up in the same place. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. And I have watched with, well, I shouldn't be surprised that I am. The Those in academia and in other places push back and make the claim of you don't understand, no, we're not teaching this. And then others saying, oh, critical race theory, it's not even happening. It doesn't even exist. You know, Trump just made it up. That's what Terry McAuliffe said uh, of Virginia. And then the latest, the very latest, that, you see, some people, they live in nothing more than a separate reality. William Jacobson joins us right now from LegalInsurrection.com. He is Cornell Law Professor uh, William Jacobson. He also has put together the site CriticalRace.org, Critical Race Training and Education, which is a fantastic resource for finding out what's going on in colleges all around the country and what it is that they're teaching. But this latest, sir... Rhode Island School Superintendents Group, we all know many of our citizens live in a separate news reality with Fox, Newsmax, and their ilk. Well, talk about bringing parents together and getting them all on the same page. They're doing a, just a just a bang-up job of that, sir. Yeah, well, what's happened is that uh, there's, and I think we've talked about this before, a woman in Rhode Island, a mother, uh, Nicole Solis, who served a bunch of public records request because she was concerned. She's got a kindergartner entering school next fall. Uh, What's going on in the school system? They gave her the runaround. They wouldn't tell her. They gave her partial information. Then they said, oh, you need to submit public records requests. So she started doing that. Then they claimed, oh, you're submitting too many of them. Well, we started investigating that. And that got a lot of national news because they threatened to sue her to get her to stop. Uh, So we served at Legal Insurrection Foundation public records requests about what was going on because I suspected from things we'd seen that the Rhode Island uh, School Superintendents Association was coordinating these efforts. And sure enough, we got documents that found out, and this is the group that all of the school superintendents in Rhode Island belong to, and they have their own lobbyists, et cetera, and uh, found out that the School Superintendents Association has been coordinating a lot of the pushback that unbeknownst to anybody other than them, they were working with what they called their union friends and um, Uh, legislators who are friendly to them and others to try to actually change the law, which would give them a better defense against these sort of requests. But in doing so, their internal communications really demonize parents on the right. They um, have selected a group they think is behind all this, and they're they're not, called Parents Defending Education. They've demonized them. They're a right-wing group. It's AstroTurf. This mother's just their, you know, basically their puppet, et cetera, et cetera. But the way they talked about the parents and about the group is so demeaning. They use, actually used the phrase you just read to your to your listeners that, you know, we have to understand that some of our readers live in this, you know, artificial bubble of Fox News and Newsmax. I mean, how denigrating. They, they basically called all the parents objecting the equivalent of deplorables. OK, uh, and, and so I think it was that attitude, because a lot of times conservatives say we don't get a fair shake from these 
educational administrators. They're biased against us. And of course, no, the administrators say, oh, we're not biased against anybody. We're not biased against conservatives. Uh, we just want what's best for the children. But now that we have their internal communications, you better believe they're biased against, quote unquote, right wing groups and organizations and parents. One of the things that, that we have seen here in central Indiana, and I, uh, I'll i share it uh, in, the, in the next hour, uh, Brownsburg, Indiana, we had a school board meeting and the superintendent there, uh, Jim Snap, is, is speaking. And uh, let me say it again. We're not teaching critical race theory. We're not teaching critical race theory. It would be detrimental to the students. But it's important for us to teach the students, like when we hear about students using the N-word, we have to teach them about right and wrong. And these, this is why we have a diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. When a school board, when you hear this and you've seen these things, you're following these things, when they say they don't teach critical race theory, but they bring in this DEI officer. I look at that and say, very often, what they claim as inclusion is far from it. The idea of diversity doesn't bother me, but they can't even define equity. So isn't it the end around in some ways of trying to get to critical race theory, or is it something completely different? Right. Critical race theory um, truly is an academic theory and approach to things. So they're not wrong when they say that, but it's become a had a broader meaning, and it includes a lot of the things they're doing in schools. They're teaching about white privilege. They're teaching um, that the country is systemically racist. They're teaching that racial events are the defining, in such as the 1619 Project, that you know racism is the defining theme of the United States. They're talking about privileges and things like that, and they're basically race shaming children. They're setting children against. Those are all critical race sort of concepts. So what they do is they play a word game. They'll say, oh, you're not going to find the words critical race theory anywhere in our curriculum. Well, maybe not, but you're finding all of the concepts. Um, Andrew Sullivan, the author, and he's somebody I quoted in the the piece I just wrote, um, I think described it very uh, well. They don't hand kindergartners a book called critical race theory but they teach them all of the concepts everything becomes about race everything becomes about who's the oppressor and who's the oppressed and presuming oppressor and oppressed from skin color they uh, sometimes separate children for different group activities they separate teachers by race by for group activities so they don't teach critical race theory what they do is they teach in critical race theory. Everything they're teaching now in the schools, or a lot of it, not everything, a lot of it are the concepts from critical race theory. They might call it anti-racism, the term most attributed to Ibram X. Kendi, uh, which is a name he adopted uh, when he became famous, um, anti-racism, which pits people against each other. They might call it equity, which is equality of results. Well, how do you get to equality results when different people have different uh, talents and different uh, performances? You discriminate against people. Uh, So they come up with these concepts of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Well, what does that mean? That means, you know, demonizing people and segregating them and and treating them based on the color of their skin. So critical race theory is deeply imbued into the fabric of many school systems, including down to the kindergarten level, but they don't use those words. So what they're doing now is they're playing word games with parents. 
you're saying, oh, where's the book? Where's the book you say we're using that has the words critical race theory? Well, you don't, but you have Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist Baby. Okay, you have books that are read that are along that whole line of thinking. And that's the problem. And that's the difficulty that parents face in confronting this is that they, they play the word games. Um, parents have to focus on what is being done in the classroom. But more than anything, parents have to be able to see what is being done. And now, that's where me... the fights are going on right now. It's over transparency. They don't want to give you the materials. They don't want to tell you. They don't want to let a parent sit in on a class. They and let's don't talk want about that for know. a second. And if I'm they don't want you to know really something, quick. that's something you better want to know. I'm talking to William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, the mind behind LegalInsurrection.com. This was over the weekend uh, on Meet the Press. PBS reporter Amna Mawaz was making this statement about parents and critical race theory. Yeah, and specific to this idea of critical race theory, I have to tell you, I just spent some time reporting on this county in Virginia about an hour outside of Washington. And, and to your point, this is something that is mobilizing people sure and is. resonating very deeply. It was about a 100-degree day, dozens and dozens Dozens and dozens of parents, mostly white in this largely affluent county, showed up to a school board meeting. For many of them, the very first school board meeting they'd ever attended, specifically because of this one issue. Parents are mobilizing here in central Indiana. It's Unify Westfield, Unify Carmel. Uh, they're together. The Fishers One is another organization uh, in, in, in Brownsburg and all across uh, the, the central Indiana area. But as you have written about it, uh, you wrote about it, I think it was last week, media panics over mounting opposition to critical race theory. They are stunned. The academic set and the media set are stunned that the parents have been looking at this, speaking about it, and when they're called racist, bigoted, or the wordplay as you're discussing it comes out, they're like, yeah, yeah, we're not confused. We see this as a problem. We want it to stop. We don't care what you call us. Our kids come first. They are floored that the parents aren't quieting uh, down. Tell us about the media panic you're seeing. Sure. It's it's a complete replay of the media, how the media tried to take down the Tea Party movement. I was very involved in covering the Tea Party movement 10 year, more than 10 years ago. They'll call it AstroTurf. They'll say this is, you know, Coke-backed groups, um, They, which I can tell you is not really true. Uh, the Koch brothers are not really involved in this. Um, they'll, they'll denigrate people as racist. And then they'll say it doesn't even exist. So they've spent years telling themselves that how great critical race theory and these racial theories are. And now they're saying it doesn't exist. So they try to marginalize it. And we're seeing those things. And then the so one marginalization is this is all astroturf. All these parents standing out in 100 degree uh, uh, temperature are only doing it because the Koch brothers are behind it. The other way they're trying to marginalize it is by is by hyperbole. Oh, so we're not allowed to talk about slavery now? There have been some major media figures at major publications who've been tweeting out, oh, you know, it's, it's June 19th, our new holiday. We're not even allowed to talk about that in school anymore, which, of course, is nonsense. So they, they create a straw man argument that people don't want history taught. We, people want history taught. Certainly, you, it's okay to talk about the Civil War and slavery. What we don't want is you treating our children based on the color of their skin. Okay, it's not that we don't want history taught. What we don't want is um, manipulated history like the 1619 Project, which has been called out by major historians. That's wrong. 
okay, and which the creator of it described as an attempt to create a narrative history, which is a different way of saying a political history. What we don't want are these politicized garbage history programs in our classrooms. We don't want you teaching our children that the most important thing in the world is the color of their skin or the color of their friend's skin. That's what we don't want. Certainly you can teach about the Civil War and slavery and Juneteenth holiday. All of those things are fine. But, you know, but stop making everything about race. Stop making mathematics about race. Stop telling students that if they show their proof, as I think happened in a school in California, that that's a white supremacy. Uh, stop telling students that if they do well on standardized tests, that's only because of white supremacy. So there are all these things. It's, it's a very a, a cultural movement that took hold in our schools that makes everything about race and parents are pushing back and parents are only finding out about it. This is completely organic. This is not created by somebody. I think what happened is that we, students have been home for a year and parents are finally learning what they're, what they're being taught. Additionally, there have been leaks of a number of documents in the last year about these horrific training programs that students and faculty are, are put through, uh, in which there's literal segregation, literal shaming of people, literal making people confess the sins of their whitehood. Uh, and people are getting disgusted. That, and this is cuts across races. It's not like that reporter said, you know, maybe that particular event was mostly white, but it, it cuts across. I refuse to believe and I refuse to accept that the, the parents of non-white students don't want them to learn math properly. I don't believe that. I don't believe those parents believe that. These are ideologically driven people who are destroying our education system by making everything about race. And they're also doing tremendous damage to the country. If you wanted a way to completely damage this country, make everything about race. And that's what they're doing. Thus, we get into the Marxist roots of much of this, which we'll get to another time. William Jacobson, Cornell Law Professor, LegalInsurrection.com is where you need to go. And you'll also find CriticalRace.org to learn about what schools are teaching about uh, critical race theory and where. Uh, The bartender and the creepy vibes. That story coming up. I'm Tony Katz. So the story is making the rounds of a bartender who was working and saw this woman in front of him and this guy who was hitting on her and thought he was weird and the situation was weird. And so he hands her the check, but it's actually a note that says, hey, if this guy's a real problem, put your ponytail on the other shoulder and we'll have him removed. The guy's giving me the creeps. And people are are hailing this, you know, quick-thinking bartender, saving women from a creepy customer. I don't know if the dude's creepy or not. I have absolutely no idea. But I think that if you're a good bartender, you're noting if somebody's having an issue. Like, that's part of the job. I, I would argue that's part of the job. It isn't just about making the drink, right? It's It's a very... If done right, it's a very intimate relationship, right? If, if you're in one of these crazy, you know, factory kind of places, crowded places, just get the drink and go. 
But even then, bartenders who are are worth their salt, they're just paying attention. If they see someone's having too much, if they see an issue, I think that's what bartenders do. I think there are a lot of stories probably that bartenders could put out, put out about, oh, yeah, here's what I witnessed, here's what I saw. I'm not, I'm not trying to slam this guy. Good on him. But I would just think that that story, which is now making the rounds, is more prevalent than one would would think, right? I think it happens more than one would 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 believe that a bartender is able to you know, take a look at a situation and say, "Hey, these people uh this, this person needs some help or this isn't this isn't right." A good bartender at least. Yeah, the parents are mobilized as we were discussing with William Jacobson. And what's going on with American Airlines? I got the stories. This is Tony Katz today on Facebook, Tony Katz Radio.